Psalm 4. I'm reading Psalm 4. It reads, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Father, we come before you, thanking you for this opportunity to hear from your word, Lord. I pray that you would have us to get everything out of this that you want us to get out of it, Father God. We pray that you would open ears and hearts and minds to, uh, to hear from you and to be changed by you, Father God. In your word, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm thinking uh, the title of this message could be God, Our Refuge. God, Our Refuge, or Our Place of Safety. We aren't told exactly what the context for this psalm is or who David, the psalmist, is referring to in it. But we should know that David had many instances of trouble in his life that could have been inspiration for this song. So what I'm going to do first, since this is a pretty short song, is I'm going to just kind of go through the verses and talk about what's being said. And then I'll go back and then talk about application for um, what's in this song. So what is happening? In verse 1, we start off, he's calling out to the Lord, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Technology. David is calling out to God in his distress. He acknowledges that God is the one who makes him righteous. And this also highlights David's confidence that he is one of God's children and can call on God. He's also bringing to remembrance times in the past where God has brought him through times of need, danger, and distress. He knows that if God has delivered him before, he can do it again. David knows where to go in times of trouble and that God honors those who seek him and him alone as their place of safety. Verse 2, O men, 
How long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David turns from his addressing God to begin to address those who are opposing him in this situation, the people that are bringing him distress. His question to the men is almost like a pleading with them to consider the foolishness of their ways. So in this situation, David is God's anointed king, the anointed king for Israel. And some of David's subjects, the people of Israel, are rejecting him, which brings shame on them, on him, and on the nation of Israel. And since Israel is representing God, it's, what is that doing to God's name? That's bringing shame on God's name. His second question, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies, in one sense suggests that the people opposing him are possibly doing so because of maybe some lies that are being told about David. In another sense, their opposition towards David, God's anointed, could be seen as them just chasing emptiness and lies because they're chasing after something other than what God has ordained. And as God is the way and the truth, anything else would be empty, a lie, and foolish. Now, what stood out to me, like, and we'll continue to see this as we look through this, these verses, is in the midst of his distress, he is still pleading with those who are causing him this distress to turn to God. Verse 3. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Continuing, David continuing in his plea with his enemies, he urges them to consider that God is for his people. He hears their cry. The opposers could gather from that that if they, his enemies, are fighting against one of God's people, they are in turn fighting against the very hand of God. And here, David still seems to be pleading with his enemies while at the same time reminding himself of the fact that despite what's going on around him, he can have confidence in the fact that he belongs to the Lord and that the Lord is his place of safety and that the Lord hears him when he calls. Verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now, some have said in this verse that David is speaking to his supporters, encouraging them not to retaliate or seek revenge against those that are opposing him. I think, however, that based on the context surrounding the verse and what's going on, that he's still speaking to his enemies. Saying to his enemies, in your anger against me, God's anointed, who he, who he has appointed, pause. Don't act on your anger. Take some time to yourself. Reflect on this situation and what you're about to do. Check your heart about your position against me, who the Lord has set apart as his own. Don't sin. Don't act against God. Be silent and consider what you're doing. And ultimately, repent of your hostility. And this next verse seems to kind of flow from this inward repentance and reflection 
to something outward. So verse 5 says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Here David causes enemies who would, after hopefully reflecting, not be enemies anymore, to move forward in, from an inward reflection to an outward expression of worship by sacrificing, not just in action, but with the right heart and trust in the Lord. And again, you can still just see throughout this progression that David is like, yo, you're my enemies, but like you need to be. not even it's not David's not even trying to get them to like him. He's just like, yo, the Lord, you need to think about him. And they're trying to he's trying to point them to them to he's trying to point them to the Lord in the midst of his distress. And then we move into verse six. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Light up the light of your face. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. David now turns away from addressing his enemies and goes back to addressing God. It's not uh, entirely clear who the many are in this verse. It could be this this, uh, question, who will show us some good, could be coming from David's enemies. It could be coming from his supporters. It could just be in a general sense that many people or looking for some good. Whoever the many are, they're looking for someone to bring good into their lives, a type of good that is worldly good, symbols of prosperity. The many who are looking for someone to bring good into their lives are looking for something that's not of eternal value. And we can see that as David Ask that the Lord will look upon his people because the Lord is the good that everyone needs. The Lord's face shining upon someone is equated with his favor being upon them. And as we look at the next verse, we can see that David puts verse 6 and verse 7 as kind of a contrast so we can see the difference between worldly prosperity and a relationship with God and what that produces. So let me read verse 6 and 7 and then talk about it a little bit. So verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they when when their grain and wine abound. Many are looking for good, but those who seek the Lord's face have more joy in their hearts than those whose cabinets are busting open, those who have plenty. David is acknowledging that the joy that comes from being in a relationship with God is beyond the temporal and circumstantial and surpasses happiness produced by worldly prosperity. And the last verse, verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord. Make me dwell in safety. David has peace because he trusts in the Lord and understands that God alone can protect him. Despite what's going on around him, he can be at peace, not fear, and he can rest because he has confidence that the Lord keeps his people. So I just said a whole bunch of stuff. So a few summary points. So if we were to just put some bullet points of what this psalm is saying, for the most part, David calls out to God in prayer. He addresses his enemies. How long will you seek emptiness and lies? 
tells them to stop thinking about or stop and think about what you're doing. Repent and put your trust in God. Then he turns back to God. Though many people seek other things, I find my joy in you. I trust in you for my safety. That's kind of a summary. But how does all of this and what David was going through apply to us? How can it apply to us? Verse 1 and 3 remind us where to put our trust in times of distress. So verse 1, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. We are in a relationship with the Lord because of his grace. We can have confidence in the fact that he provides our righteousness. David was aware of who made him blameless as we should be if we have put our trust in Christ. If we begin to think too much of our good behavior or of how much we know about the Bible or start to think that God chose us because of something we had to offer, we are beginning to lose sight of who our righteousness belongs to and who it comes from. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, and we have no righteousness. Another thing from this, uh, verse 1, God's previous work in our lives can serve as a reminder that he can do it again. Sometimes we can get so caught up in our new challenges that we forget what God has done before. Let us not be so forgetful. May God keep in our minds and hearts who he has revealed himself to be to us. Over and over in the Psalms, you can see, over and over in the Psalms, you can see him being called a refuge, a place of safety. Let us be reminded of the times he has been our refuge in times of trouble instead of running to empty alternatives. Verse 3. But, now, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord is for his people. He hears our cry. We should know that. We should have confidence in that. David's confidence was in the Lord as a place of safety during times of trouble. He can have this confidence because he knew the Lord set him apart. What gives us confidence that God has set us apart for himself? For David, a prophet of God came and anointed him. That was very clear, right? For us, when we put our faith in Christ's work on the cross for our salvation, we are set apart. Before being set apart, we could be crying out to any and everything in times of trouble. But when God sets us apart, he is saying, you are mine. We should get confidence from that fact that we can go to him for our needs because of what he did for us. Who or what are we crying out to in times of distress? Are we confident that the Lord will answer our call? Even when our opponents say otherwise? In the midst of a godless culture, how... Are we going about reinforcing the idea that God is there for us? 
Do we have confidence in the strength of the Lord's hand? Or are we tempted to doubt him because of what others around us are saying? Sometimes you may hear people look at God funny because he called himself a jealous God. As if it's a as if he's petty in his jealousy. However, if we were looking at things correctly, his jealousy would make sense. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, chooses us to be in relationship with him. He wants to be our refuge, our place of safety. But then when we're in trouble, we run to the creation rather than the creator. And God knows that he is the source of all our needs, and yet he watches us run to everything but him. And that produces a righteous jealousy. If you have put your trust in Christ and his work on the cross, remember who you are to God. Remember where you need to turn in times of trouble and in times of prosperity. God is there and hears you despite what the world around you may be saying, despite what your flesh may be leading you to believe. The next point, we must reflect on any areas we might not be submitting to God's will in. Make peace with God through his sacrifice. If you haven't already did that and continue to do that, actually. And continue to move towards holiness through, through the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? David's enemies, rejecting him as cho- God's chosen king, fighting against the hand of God, was bringing shame in many ways. But how can we relate to that situation? How do we respond to God's anointed and appointed, whether that be political leaders, bosses, supervisors, managers, police, parents, leadership in the church? Of course, this doesn't mean like blind support and trust. Nor does this mean you can't speak out if something clearly wrong is being done. This doesn't mean you can't ask questions. But it's more about how is your heart positioned towards those who God chose to give authority over you? What is your submission looking like? Are we bringing shame upon the name of Christ? By knowingly not submitting to God's will in certain areas of our lives. I was just listening to something about this, another message. Like we, we are walking around as representatives. Representatives who are supposed to be submitting to the will of God. A God who has told us that we have stuff we have to do. 
And if we're not doing the stuff that we're supposed to do, of course, that doesn't save us, but we're supposed to be doing stuff if we're saved. (laughs) And if we're not doing that stuff, then how is that making our headship look? That's bringing shame upon the name. And it, it came up in the example of evangelism. And I don't, I'm, if you've been evangelizing or if you've spoken to anybody about God or the Bible, you've probably heard people have negative church experiences because of something that somebody did or said wrong. That's messing up the testimony. And that's putting up a roadblock between somebody's eternity with God and somebody's eternity in hell. If we are not submitting in certain areas, what is the vain thing or lie that we're submitting to instead? Could it be these types of thoughts? Oh, God couldn't have meant it like that. Or did God really say that I have to do it, this thing? Could we be using God's sovereignty as an excuse? God created me with this attitude. He gave me this personality. He made me this way so he understands. Do we use excuses like this as if our personalities and attitudes are somehow off limits to God's changing? Or could it be that we think we know better? Verse 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. So after considering all of that, are we reflecting in our own hearts if any of these areas exist in our lives? Are we silent before the Lord as we reflect, quick to hear what God has to say, slow to speak, slow to get angry? Are we ever in silence? I was just, that just came to mind because sometimes we get so busy with doing stuff that we hardly ever slow down to stop and have a thought. On top of that, it's a lot of media that is designed to keep us going from one thing to the next. So we cannot stop and have a thought. It keeps our mind racing. Before we can be quick to hear what the Lord is saying, we have to be able to break away so we can hear his voice at all. And then we can search to see if there is any area that we may have been holding back from the Lord that we need to repent of. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Are you offering right sacrifices to the Lord? What, what does this mean for us? First off, there is no right sacrifice if your heart isn't right before God. In the Old Testament, God rebuked Israel for offering sacrifices out of routine while their hearts were far from him. In God's new covenant, the right sacrifice was one that we could never offer. God offered it for us. 
the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you haven't put your trust in Christ's offering, now will be a good time to begin. That's where it all begins. Because there is no other sacrifice that will bring peace between us and God. I remember when I was younger, I would tithe my money from work on Sunday and then go do whatever I wanted the rest of the week. I figured I was good with God because I was consistently putting something in the plate and I considered myself a decent human being. Those are my terms for being at peace with God. But praise the Lord that later in my life, God showed me that I was far away from him in my heart and definitely not at peace with him on his terms. I had to put my trust in Christ's sacrifice. And through that, I was able to begin to honor him with my life. He began to work in me from there. Trusting him to work in me to become more like him. And as that was happening, the offerings of finances and resources were coming from a right heart, a heart that's right with God, and not from a heart that is just doing something out of routine or because I see other people doing it, and definitely not from a place that's just trying to pay God off. The next point. In the midst of our distress, we should be willing to point our distressors to Christ. Uh, Verses 2, 4, and 5. Verse 2 says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Verse 5. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. In each of these verses, David is pointing his enemies to the Lord. Now, there have been a lot of things about the Bible and following Jesus that didn't make a lot of sense at first to me. Like, not everything was clear. But over time, God gradually made Many of, things, many of these things more clear to me. And it's coming from this idea, as, as Pastor Rick says, that it, God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But even to this day, reading about how David did not kill Saul is confusing. It does not make sense to me in my natural sense. I, I, know I, get the, I get why, but I'm, I'm just like, Lord, would I be able to do something like that? It's not natural. Saul was literally going after David to kill him, and David had the opportunity to take him out, but David chose not to. He refused to act against the one that God had chosen as king for that time. He paused and did not sin. He considered the Lord's will before his own. In a similar way, despite the fact that people mentioned in this psalm were his enemies, David is still pointing them to the Lord. Is this, this 
forgiveness, revenge type of thing? Is this a hidden area of rebellion in our hearts? Do we rejoice at the fall of our enemies as Proverbs tell us not to? Do we get so caught up in the physical nature of our enemies that we forget that eternity is at stake for everyone? And do we forget that God wants everyone, even our enemies, to repent and turn to him? Uh, Matthew 5 43 through 47, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Being set apart by God is to be different from the rest of the world, as Jesus is making clear here. What made this whole forgiveness of enemies thing start to make sense for me as I was looking at this passage is verse 45. Where he says, do these things so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. And he goes on to describe how God operates. I use the phrase, I want to be more like Jesus pretty often. But how often do I truly consider what that means and what that actually looks like? What parts of my thoughts and attitude need to change? God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent and turn to him, even my enemies. So our attitude should be the same if we say we want to be a lot more like Christ. Point five. We must look to the Lord as our source of true joy and peace. Uh, verse six, verses six through eight read, there are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. First off, you can see the difference between the joy in these two circumstances. One type of joy comes from things going well in life. The other type of joy comes from a relationship with God. Some people would call this a distinction between joy and happiness. Happiness is based on circumstance. You will feel happy when your bank account looks nice. You will feel happy when your friends are calling you. You will feel happy when you're able to do all the things that you want to do. But that happiness will quickly fade when your dollars start to drop. You might smile less when your phone stops ringing or when you find out that you have to be content with looking at a postcard of a getaway vacation instead of hopping on a plane. 
Now, I'm sure everybody has been on that ride to some extent, that happiness ride. And if you've ridden long enough, then you will hopefully have realized that chasing happiness is an empty pursuit. It's, it's just not sustainable, and it does not fulfill. It only leaves you wanting more and feeling empty. What David is talking about in comparison is joy. Now, I don't know exactly what David was feeling, but in this psalm, we can see that despite all the negative talk that's being directed at him, he was able to stand on a solid foundation, which is the faithfulness of God. There is nowhere else to look for fulfillment, true fulfillment. There's nowhere else to look for true peace, security, a purpose. There are plenty of things that will try to deceive you into thinking that they're worth betting your life on, like wisdom, wealth, social influence, family. These are just a few things. And these things can be good in their place, but they're not to be compared with the faithfulness of God. Everything else is flawed and fluctuates, and God is perfect and unchanging. And that's why after all is said and done with David in this psalm, and you can see it in many other psalms, that he's resolved to rest in God's safety. At the end of the day, where are we going to find rest? Where are we going to find peace? God wants, us, he, God wants us to call on him. And he wants us to put our trust in him. And he knows better than we do that there is no other place to go. So in closing, our cry to the lost should be the same as God's cry to us. How long will you chase after emptiness and lies? Stop and consider your posture towards God and his call to you. Are you at peace with God? Or is your heart, or the, the heart of your, is your heart's fist raised in his face in rebellion? Make peace with God by repenting of any rebellion against him and putting your trust in God's only provided sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And seek God alone for your source of joy and peace. <laughs>